It's uh, Leviticus 4, verses 27 to 35. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commands ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt, of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove, as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a, ple- a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin, sorry, kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove, his fr- the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Now, that's a weird one to read, isn't it, for Christmas? But it's, you'll see it's not quite that weird. Let me begin in an even more weird place. There is a book that became a very famous Academy Award-winning movie called Silence of the Lambs. In in quoting the book, I am not suggesting you go watch it. But I am suggesting that the book raises important questions about evil and sin. Okay, If you have the stomach for it, which I'm not suggesting you should. But in the story, what what is happening in the story is this. The the author is Tom Harris. And he has a, a FBI agent who's named Clarice Starling. And her job is to find an active serial killer. And to do so, she enlists the help of a captured serial killer named Hannibal Lecter. And she goes to him and tries to figure out how this other active murderer's mind works to try to find him. And at one point, she asks this, she says this to Hannibal. She says, what happened to you? How did you, like, what made you this way? She suggests that there's something that happened. And his response is this. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? Am I evil, Officer Starling? And what Harris is raising in this story, and with Hannibal's quote there specifically, is something we've done in the modern world, especially in the last number of decades, really, is we have removed the idea that anyone is bad. Nobody's bad. We're all born good, and the world corrupts us. That's the way you've probably heard it said. You probably may even, you may even believe that. The problem with it is it's just not true. Even a, a, a pagan like Tom Harris, who as far as I know, he's not a Christian, knows this. Everybody seems to know this, but we don't say it in the public. So what we've done is we've said, listen, in fact, there's actually actually a show on Netflix that is called The Making of a Serial Killer. The idea being, we make people like this. If we simply stopped abusing our children and stopped loving people and and made sure we got rid of poverty and we removed the conditions of oppression, then we'd all be good. We'd all behave well. Which, 
sounds very nice, but it's completely true, untrue. And this is, sorry, let's make sure we don't edit that part in the sermon. And, but it's no wonder, though, that Canadians reject Christianity and reject sin and reject not just sin, but even the sacrifice. The words we've just read are considered cruel, barbarous, and unnecessary. The modern world cringes at the idea of bloodletting and sacrifice. Why? What's the point of it? But let's not judge them too harshly. They're wrong, but you under, I can understand the logic. Because a sin is the breaking of a divine law. That's what a sin is. That's the basic definition. But if you believe there is no divine, there's no God, then there's no God law. There's no divine law. In which case, there's no such thing as sin because there's no law to break. In which case, a sin offering is useless at best, unnecessary, cruel, and barbarous at worst. So I can understand why Canadians reject and cringe at the idea of sacrifice. However, the Bible disagrees completely with this assessment. The Bible disagrees and says, your environment has nothing to do with it. You've heard me say before, it's D.L. Moody once uh, was asked a similar question like this about, you know, if we just gave people education, they'd be better. And his famous response was, listen, if I have a man who is stealing nuts and bolts from the railroad and I send him to university, he'll come back and steal the whole train. Because the problem is not your conditions. The problem is you. And the Bible makes this incredibly clear. In fact, Leviticus makes it incredibly clear. And just think about Christmas makes this incredibly clear as well. In Leviticus, in the first seven chapters, there's five offerings. There's only five offerings that are outlined in the entire book of Leviticus. The first two are the grain and um, uh, fellowship offerings. And now those offerings are basically us saying thank you to God. But the last three, burnt offering, sin offering, guilt offering, those are not. Those are the way of us saying to God, I'm sorry. And the reason the Bible says that is because it says you have something to be sorry for. You are wrong before God. You stand condemned before him. Now, the world would disagree, and that's okay. I understand that. But the question needs to be asked, what's wrong with us? I titled the sermon, What's Wrong? Because there's something wrong with us. That's the claim of the Bible. And no matter what I thought as a skeptic, no matter what skeptics may think about this, you have to be blind to think the world is running well. And to think that we can get this right over time by ourselves. We've proven through centuries that clever people and better systems and more money don't fix it. That rich people are the ones that plunged us into the, de- the de- Great Depressions. Right? White people with education, with money. Not the poor people. Not people who were beaten by their parents. Not the downtrodden. We can't hide behind behaviorism. So, this passage, the sin offering itself, helps us, and Christmas helps us to see to answer some questions, or at least understand these questions. And they are this. What's wrong with us? Why does God care? And what has he done about it? So what's wrong with us? Why does God care? And what he's done about it? So let's answer those questions. So the first thing is, what's wrong with us? Well, let's begin by defining what the word sin means. Now, sin, I'm um, take this little brief definition. It comes from something called the New City Catechism, which is a catechism. So it's a, it's a, it's a tool that is used to help people learn doctrines of the church, and it mashes together the great old doctrine or uh, catechisms like the Westminster and Heidelberg together. And the definition it gives is very simple. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, 
not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our, own, in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So sin, biblically speaking, is nonconformity. You haven't followed God's law. You haven't lived up to it. In fact, you've heard this before, if you're a Christian, the word hata, which is the primary word used for sin in the Old Testament, is an archery term. It means missing the mark. And therefore, let's not shy away from this. God is hard as nails. If you miss the mark this much, you deserve death. The archery term is on purpose. Let's not pretend like it's not true. Sin is real, and God is very holy. And he says, you can't miss it all. Now, let's not shy behind that. We sometimes say, oh no, God's gracious. He is. But before we get there, we have to see that we fall short all the time, continually. It's important to know that. And what's interesting about the sin offering in chapter 4 and 5 of Leviticus is it's not intentional sin he's talking about. He says if they come and they sin unintentionally. So do you see what God is saying? It's not just those intentional sins, but the ones you don't even know you're making mean you deserve death. Ignorance is no answer, no excuse. You are dead. You deserve to be killed if you unintentionally sin. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But the key, and we'll talk about why it's not harsh, but let me put this out there first. The point of Leviticus is to help tell you continually that sin is not a feeling, it is a condition. You don't have to feel guilty to be guilty. I, uh, I do it all the time, but... Um, well, not this particular thing. But driving in Hamilton is very confusing. Have you ever been to Hamilton with all those one-way streets? Uh, I have gone down a one-way street before, in the wrong direction. Not knowing, because the signs weren't marked. Now, nothing happened, I, nobody's there, I can get off quickly and I correct it. But I'm still wrong. I've told you before, when I was once in, in uh, Alberta, traveling for work, I got a ticket. Uh, I was driving to Banff and I got a ticket on photo radar. The problem with photo radar is it took months to get to me here in Ontario. So for two months, I was guilty, but I didn't feel it. I didn't feel guilty, but I was guilty. So my feeling had nothing to do with my guilt. And God is making this clear. Israel, you are so broken that you can't help but sin, even unintentionally. Your very nature is to screw up constantly. But the unintentional thing, it doesn't change it. You know, even in, jo in Joshua 9, they talk about manslaughter. Everybody knows what manslaughter is. is you know, First-degree murder is intentional. You plan to kill somebody. Manslaughter is when you do it accidentally. You're not paying attention. You're on your cell phone, and you hit somebody, and they die. That's manslaughter. Now, the penalty for those two crimes may be different, intentional versus unintentional, but the condition is the same. You're both guilty, 100%. And this is the point that we're getting all through, is we're being told something's wrong with you. It's not just intentional. You can't help but sin. You need to see that humanity. It's what God is trying to anchor in here. And somebody uh, rightly asks me regularly this question, but isn't it a little extreme? I mean, when my kids mess up at home and they break a rule they didn't know they're supposed to break, or I do, let me use me as an example. Sarah bakes a lot of wonderful breads. If she doesn't tell me specifically which bread I'm not supposed to eat because it's a gift, I will eat that bread. And there's more than once I've seen a lovely loaf of warm bread and I have cut into it and she comes home and says, no, I was going to give that to someone. But it's already in my belly. Now, is it fair to take that unintentional sin, I didn't know, and then to say, death? That, I can understand that that sounds harsh. 
Somebody once asked R.C. Sproul, a famous theologian, passed away recently, four years ago, I think, um, theologian and a pastor. This very sim- he asked this very question at a conference. He said, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Asking the same question. Watch the video, because it's pretty funny it's a, to see him do it. But here's his response. This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people, he says. I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. The question isn't why, it, it, why, sorry, the question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of God, who God is, then that's the question, isn't it? And Sproul is right. The, one of the reasons we have to read Leviticus, as boring as you may find it, and why I as a pastor have to do my job to help you understand it better, is because it helps to re-establish the line of the creature-creator distinction. There's a creator and there's a creature. You are not the creator. He is not the creature. And that line gets blurred. And the moment it gets blurred, we start saying, why should he tell me what's right? Why does he have to get to say, this thing should die and this should not? Who says? And what Leviticus says continually is, you are creature, not creator. And it draws that line very harshly, especially for us modern types. But Sproul is right. If the Bible is to be believed, the punishment is not too severe. Christmas, in fact, is proof that the punishment is not severe. Because instead of crushing us, which he could have, he didn't. He didn't do it at all. It's infinitely gracious. And then to say we're going to stand before God one day and say, well, listen, you know, um, Faith was out of fashion in the modern 21st century Canada. It was discredited intellectually. It was not being talked about in the media. My friends didn't believe it. All the celebrities I like don't believe it. So I didn't believe it. That's not a defense. It's not a defense. You are dead before God. That's what's wrong with us. This is a harsh truth of Christmas. If Christmas doesn't mean you're dead and needed Christ, it means nothing. It means nothing. It's just a, we're just telling a nice story and feeding Walmart with more money. It must be saying something. And the first thing it's saying is there's something wrong with us. That's first. Second thing it's telling us is that God cares, but why? Now, think about this. We often think about God, and I certainly did, as being a wooden, very rigid judge, that all he cares about is having himself worshipped, and he's just worried about, you know, keeping everybody else in line and getting what he's owed. Now, if God was only concerned about his holiness, meaning only concerned about righting a wrong, then why is there a sacrificial system at all? Because if I simply, if Sarah simply wants to uh, pay me back for wronging her by eating the bread, she doesn't need to give me a way to get back in good books with her, like bake me another one, which you don't want to make me do. It wouldn't taste good. But instead, she would just smack me, right? There would just be, I'm going to right the wrong, just going to be punishment. But the very fact that God says there's a way for you to have this wrong in you righted indicates that God cares about something 
beyond just settling the ledgers, the, the right and the wrong, the sin and, and, the, and the reward or whatever. There's something more going on. Now, we see what he cares about in the way chapter 4 is structured. You see, because if there's a sin offering, it'd be very simple, wouldn't it? Uh, if, if I'm making sin laws, it'd be very easy. Unintentional sin, here's the penalty. Unintentional sin, one bull. Easy. But instead, what God does is he breaks up the sin offering and he divides it based on people. He describes how four different groups are to make the sin offering. And they're different slightly. Why? Well, when you, when you see why and what's going on, it should change your mind about what the point of a sacrifice is. So he breaks it in these four groups, and those four groups are the high priest, the community, or Israel as a whole. There are different offerings for each. And then the leaders, and then the commoners. It's intentionally cascading downwards, like a hierarchy dropping. And each one has a different offering, slightly different, a little, to give. One gives a bull, and a bull, and then a goat, and then the commoners have a lot of options of what they can give. Why? What's the point? Why not just say one offering, one size fits all? Because today, if our premier gets caught speeding, or I get caught speeding, it's the same ticket. Why is it that there's different rules here? Well, let's look at it briefly. The first one is the high priest. When he talks about the high priest, the, he, the, the high priest's job is to give a bull. The bull is the greatest, the most expensive offering. Okay? It's the most costly sacrifice of the, of the Israelite root laws. Now, the reason is this. The reason the penalty is higher for high priests is because he, his sphere of influence is larger. If he messes up and he does something wrong, he implicates the entire country. And because his responsibility is larger, his sacrifice is higher. He needs to know he is accountable for people. And God, by doing so, says he cares about you because he wants to hold everybody else accountable who's responsible for potentially leading you into sin. And so this is why the Bible repeatedly says, leaders are the ones I'm after. God says the leaders are to blame because they're the ones with the responsibility. So that's why. So you see, the sacrifice isn't entirely about God getting what he deserves. It's about God caring so much for you that he's trying to help the situation. The next one is community. And communities can sin collectively. And this is difficult for us in a modern world where we are more individualistic because it condemns this idea that we have that says, he's not my prime minister. I didn't create these laws. I'm not doing it. I'm not responsible. It's those guys. God says, not true. If you're a part of this community, you're accountable for the decisions of the community, whether or not you did it or not. This is why exile happens and the innocent die in the exile not just the guilty. The community is accountable, and God is trying to say, you're all part of this. In Joshua 9, Joshua 20 was the, the manslaughter of Joshua 9, they bind the nation into a, a covenant with another nation called Gibeon. Now, they weren't supposed to do that. And because the leaders bound the nation into a covenant, the nation suffered. So when we have these morally evasive comments of, well, I can't fix it, I'm just one person, I only have one vote, my MP isn't listening to my emails, or whatever. That is not an excuse. You are all accountable for one another. You see what God's doing? He's trying to anchor into this offering that you think is about God. God is saying, yes, you have to write me because I'm holy, but you are responsible for one another, and that's what grieves me. God will survive your sin. 
you may not. And so the, he anchors the community in these, in these, in these sacrifices. The next one is leaders. Now, a leader only has to provide a goat. It's a slightly less costly sacrifice. Why? Because a village leader, a CEO, those sorts of people in the community, a mayor, they're responsible for a lot of people, but not as many as the high priest and the community. And so their sin is, although still guilty before God, still having to make atonement, the sacrifice, what the cost is for that, is smaller because of the implications on you. You see what he's doing? The sin and the, the sacrifice is rooted in how many people you screw up with your sin. And the last one is the commoners. And that's us. That's what we read this morning. That's all, most of us. Actually, I don't know where I'd be. I'd probably be the leaders. I'm certainly not the high priest. But I have more accountability because if I mess up, I bring, I have to accept this as a pastor, right? If I screw up, what I do reflects poorly on all of you, doesn't it? So I'm accountable for that. Now, the commoner, it's interesting. They only, they, they, God says, bring a goat. You don't have a goat, bring a lamb. You don't have that, bring some pigeons or a dove. If you don't have that, later on, he says, bring some flour. Now, what is he doing? Yes, okay, your sphere of influence is smaller. If you mess up as a father, then you mess up your family, which is terrible. But it's not the whole world. So it's a smaller penalty. But think about what it is as well. Every other religion says, if you want to be right with God or the gods... You have to be the most pious. You know, pray every day at this time, face this direction. Don't eat this, eat that. Um, even in things like Buddhism, you still have the same problems of, of hierarchy that says the only ones who gain nirvana and enlightenment are the ones who are clever enough to figure it out and the ones who are most obedient and, and attain enlightenment and all this stuff. Only in, religion, in Christianity does God come and say, in Judaism, does God come and say, I don't care about this. I want you all to have access to forgiveness. If you don't have the money for a bull, that's okay. A goat, you don't have that, it's okay. A cup of flour, think about this. All of your mess can be forgiven for a cup of flour. Is that, and we have the nerve to go to God and say, too much. Barbarous, cruel. I understand the modern challenges. But this is grace on display. There's no other religion that says this. And the reason he wants sacrifice is to benefit you. He deserves it. He deserves our glory, our, our praise. He deserves everything. And you see, it's kind of circular, isn't it? He deserves our praise because he has made forgiveness so accessible. But he has made forgiveness so accessible because he loves us. See? Because he makes it accessible, he deserves praise. And it goes around and around. So he cares. Why does he care that we've gone wrong? Because it hurts us. He will survive the sin. You and I may not. So we're, something's gone wrong. Christmas shows us. He cares enough to send his son, which we'll talk about. Now, what has he done? Let's move into the last part. Sin is real, okay? This is the key of the Bible. Sin is real, and we'd say, well, why can't God just forgive it? Well, because God wouldn't be just if he forgave it. If we had a judge, a Supreme Court judge, and imagine you had your child, oh, I don't know, pick something, any atrocity happens to your child, you would want the judge to hold somebody accountable. If the judge said, I'm going to forgive it. There'll be no payment for the debt. What would you think of that judge? You would rightly run him out of town. So there must be justice. If something is wrong, God would not be just if he just let sin disappear and never dealt with it. It must be dealt with. Now, by grace, God has brought this remedy, and that's sacrifice, at least into the Old Testament. He brings in sacrifice. And the question, again, moderns will ask is, well, why animals? Sacrifice, come on, Carl. It's like... 
It's 21st century. You've got doctorates. You're not an idiot. Why, do you, why would you support any of this nonsense in the Old Testament? Well, first I would spoil one problem with this idea. And the idea is that sacrifice is something that is foreign to us. It is not. There's a scholar and a speaker and a thinker, a writer, an author named Derek Rishmawi. Sorry. And he says this. We put on sacred vestments and sacrifice sweat and blood, even, at the gym so the gods will bless us with sex appeal, Aphrodite, or spare us with, from sickness, Apollos. We sacrifice time and our families at work so mammon will shower us with possessions and recession-proof 401ks, American. We sacrifice our neighbors' reputations and ritualized social media posts to, to Feme, goddess of fame and rumor, that we might protect our own in exchange. See, we sacrifice all the time. Anything we do, we give to. If you value even something we would call harmless, if you have a hobby, you sacrifice excess income for it and time away to, to serve it. It's what you do. And here we are thinking we're high and mighty because sacrifice is so archaic an idea. At least, at very, I mean, there's much more to be said, but at very least, God said no human sacrifice. We don't have that problem. There's a, a photographer um, and his name, and you can Google him, he's got all kinds of things. His name is Eric Pickersgill. And he took a bunch of pictures, we just have them scrolling, if you don't mind, uh, of people and who were on their devices. And then he said, just take the device out of your hand to show what it looks like when we are ignoring our people. Here's a family at dinner. Take the device out. There's a, two men who could be talking, looking at their phones. And he took the hand out so we see how pitiful, it really is a pitiful look. This one of kids should be playing. Look at them. And the last one, I, there's, there's a number of pictures. I just chose some randomly. Is that okay? And so you see, here we are, high and mighty. Oh, why, why would God say kill an animal to sacrifice? My friends, you are sacrificing your own children, your own marriages, your own everything on the altar of what? Social media? I don't even know. And I'm guilty. I'm not picking on anybody. We're all guilty of it. And here we have the nerve to say animal sacrifice is too much. Here is one of the things I think is interesting. God makes a way. He, he's, he comes and says, here's the terms of peace that I am offering to you. And, you know, it's interesting, but uh, let me actually let me go through the offering first before I do this. Well, this. This thing that God does with his sacrifice, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you this ritual. And this ritual is going to atone for your sin. And now that could ask questions. Well, why? Why? It seems arbitrary. Why, why, why has God just come up with a ritual to atone for my sins? Listen, we do this constantly. When I get a ticket, we have agreed as a society on a ritual. You get a ticket, the policeman tells you, you then go and you pay this. I accept we accept as a country, as a, as a civic authority, as, as, a, as police, we accept your sacrifice of 100 and whatever dollars as atonement for your sin of speeding. Listen, we've got rituals all the time. We're constantly engaging in rituals. Think about the symbols we use. If you see a man on the side of the road doing this, what does it mean? He's hitchhiking. If you see a sign that says Toronto, 45, you know Toronto's 45 kilometers away. We have signs, we have rituals that always, we're always engaged in. And the reason the ritual has power is because the authority behind it has granted it power. Because the government and the police have said, if you pay this fine, you're absolved of your speeding debt. There's power in it. 
So the reason this has power, as an, as a, not because there's meaning in killing an animal. There's nothing in that. We kill animals all the time. The reason it had power and authority is because the power behind it who said, I will accept this act as atonement. The question is, why is it that act? And there's high, high sim- symbolism in it. Think about the idea that you have to take, first you have to come trembling before God, because remember, you may not believe in God, but the ancients did. And when you come trembling and you're only a few feet from where he is standing and residing in the tent of meeting, that's an awe-inspiring moment. You then put your hands on this animal to show you. Now, does anything happen there? There's no magic coming out of you and putting a sin on this thing. It's not what's happening. But the symbolism is there for you to say, this is real. A real living thing must die. And that's why, have you noticed in the the sacrifice, who kills it? You do. You take the offering to the altar. You slit its throat. Brutal? Yes. The point is to say, sin is costly. And then, miraculous, it's it's incredible. You know what they do then? They take out these these parts of of the animal and they burn some of it on the altar. And those things, that it, the parts that you burn are the parts that represented symbolically your heart and your life and your emotions to show that you were giving it all up to God. Then you take the rest of the carcass of the animal, you drag it out of the tent, outside of the tent, somewhere dirty and unclean, and you burn it entirely. What is interesting about this is every other sacrifice, just about, the meat from the sacrifice was given to someone. You would eat it as part of the offering or it would be given to the priests because they didn't have other jobs and they asked how they supported themselves. In this case, it's burned up. And the reason was this. No one should profit from sin. No one should ever profit, even unintentional sin. So everything is burned up entirely. So this symbolism is intentional. It's for your sake, not for God's. God doesn't need your food. He's not a Greek God that is waiting for the offering to have dinner. This isn't the point. The symbolism is for you and for I. Now, what he has done in this offering, though, is he's left a lot of questions. Israel, for years and centuries, have asked the same questions you and I are asking. We're not cleverer than the Israelites. They ask the same questions. If the offering is meant to atone for sin, why do I have to keep doing it? How is it possible that blood of an animal, a dove, offsets my sin? I mean... It's a lot of questions we have, right? A lot of, it's fair questions, and God leaves them there. He allows you to think about it. And the reason is he wants you to see the insufficiency of it. He wants you to see how grave your sin is, but how inadequate it is. Isn't it funny? We all at once, we're so hypocritical as modern Canadians. I am. We say things like, it's too high a cost killing something for your sin. It's too costly. But then when I say, okay, but forgiveness comes with just repenting. No, that's too easy, though. That's too easy. How could, how could a murderer be uh, forgiven for the blood of a dove? Come on. Too wimpy. That's not enough. And yet the other side of their mouth, we're saying, it's too costly. Why is somebody else paying for your sin? We're hypocrites. We're terrible. We can't even figure this out. Now, what has God done? He then comes and leaves these questions, and he then works with signs. And he then comes in Isaiah and says, I'm going to give you another sign. And the sign will be that the virgin will have his child. And his son will be Emmanuel. And he starts providing these other signs that connect into the sin offering. And you're able to then see that he is pointing us to something. He's preparing us for something. That the law and these offerings are meant to show us that we are sinners. That God cares and he's made a way out. But it's made to force us to say, but there must be a better way. Because is life only going to be continual sacrifice? There must be a way to end it. Or otherwise, we're just stuck on a loop. And is that what we want? 
And here, of course, comes Christmas. And when Christ is born, you've heard this, I'm sure, he's given these three gifts. And the gifts are gold, incense, and myrrh. Now, the gold is an obvious one. It's for a king. He is the king. The incense is for a priest, because that's what priests were. He's our, he's our king and our priest. Melchizedek, if you want to make those connections. But he's also getting myrrh, which was historically connected to being a prophet. And the reason was myrrh was used to anoint dead bodies, because they started to stink. So you stuff them full of myrrh so that they didn't stink. And prophets always died. And so what is happening, it's kind of ominous. Imagine going to somebody's house who's just had a baby or the hospital, and you bring them a gift of uh, a brochure for their plot at a funeral, at a cemetery. Here you go. It's kind of dark, isn't it? But this is exactly what the men are doing. These people, when they bring Christ myrrh and Mary myrrh, they're saying, he's going to, he's going to die. The symbol is that he is being born to be this offering. But because he's going to be this perfect offering, because his offering is infinitely more costly, because it's God himself dying for you, because the cost is infinitely more, so the effect of it is infinitely gracious, so that you never have to repeat it. There's nothing more to be given. All the blood of animals, remember, it was all poured out. You had to watch it being poured out at the base of the temple to show the cost of your sin. And all those gallons and gallons, I don't know how many, of, sin, of animals sacrificed did nothing to keep your sin from coming back because the next day you'd sin, you have to come back again. But Christ comes and he does this. He dies for you. If Christmas doesn't mean that you are saved from your sin, it is a meal, five extra pounds and debt. That's all it is. Christmas says that you're a hopeless sinner, but God loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place so that you could live with him forever. Accept the gift. It's very simple. It's not rocket surgery. It's gospel. Let's pray.